You ever hear the legend of Robin Hood? Rich dude. Gave it up all to fight the power, help the poor, free the oppressed. Like that. And then right there at the end, when it was all over and he knew he was about to die, he gathered his friends around him and shot one last arrow up into the air and told them to bury him where it fell. I'm Eddie Webb, and today we're going to talk about Green Arrow Year One, Issues 1 through 6, here on Speechless. Welcome to episode five of my Green Arrow exploration of Speechless, and uh, I'm almost I'm excited about this one. Like all the other ones, I was like interested in at various levels, but when I was doing my initial research, the team on this one was actually really exciting to me personally. Uh, so um, the mainly, I mean, I'll go through the whole team later on, but uh, it was written by Andy Diggle and was penciled and inked by an artist named Chalk. And both of them are actually uh, primarily known for their work on the British comic 2000 AD which is where I know both of them from. Uh, Andy Douglas was even the editor on 2080 for a while, and Jock did some art in the 90s and early 2000s on 2080, and they, they still do work here and there with 2080 even today. Uh, but I knew them through some of their um, uh, Judge Dredd undercover uh, work. Uh, they did, they, there's a, a group of the Wally Squad who are undercover judges in Judge Dredd. And so Andy Diggle and Jock separately and together have worked on various stories for that. Uh, American comic creators might know them more for their run on The Losers, which was a Vertigo title. Uh, and this is an interesting moment for, for a few reasons. Uh, uh, one, this is, uh, right now we're in 2007, so we are nine years ahead of the um, Connor Hawk run. And uh, we're back to Oliver Queen being Green Arrow. Uh, and this was part of a, an initiative to kind of do other critically year one uh, retellings of different DC characters. So it's interesting that Diggle and Jock were chosen for this because at this point, they're known both in uh, Britain and in America as primarily kind of crime-ish team. They, they tend to do kind of darker, you know, more morally gray, you know, yeah, kind of crime drama type stuff. Uh, so they were a really interesting choice for this. Uh, and... So for them to do kind of a, what basically is a reboot of Green Arrow yet again, was, was really an interesting choice. And uh, I'll go through it, but at, at the end, I really feel like this is the first stab at Green Arrow that does actually make an attempt to try to synthesize all the different approaches I talked about in the last episode where Green Arrow's just kind of all over the map. And this was a really solid attempt to make a synthesized vision out of it. Well, whether it's more or not, we'll see. But I, I, I'm, this is also, I think, 
where a lot of the Arrow TV show gets Genesis. I talked before, but oh, I see that bit from Arrow, that bit from Arrow. I do feel like year one is probably the comic they handed to the producers and said, okay, we're going to base our version off of this. It's not identical to the Arrow interpretation by any stretch of imagination. It is much more rooted in the DC comics interpretation. Again, it's an attempt to try to do that year one take, kind of like um, uh, the, the seminal Batman year one uh, done from the 80s to kind of retell these classic characters, but but to, to take all this accumulated history and, and to try to make it all mesh together and make sense. Um, but uh, anyway, so let's kind of dive into this. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, it's written, all these same team, uh, as I mentioned, it was written by Andy Degol, uh, was penciled and inked by Jock, he's only known as Jock. Uh, lettered by Jared K. Fletcher, colored by David Bar- Barron, uh, edited by Mike Carlin and Tom Palmer Jr. And once again, huge thanks to the DC Fandom Wiki. It's really, really helpful in uh, a good chunk of this research. So, issue one Oliver Queen and his partner Hackett go mountain climbing across a frozen tundra. Hackett saves Ollie from nearly falling into a ravine and criticizes him for his recklessness. Three days later, the two return to Star City, where they appear at a charity auction fundraiser for the Star City Drug and Rehabilitation Center. Ali is inebriated and takes a spectacle of himself, particularly when he makes an outrageous bid for the prop bow used by Archer Howard Hill in the film The Adventures of Robin Hood, who, by the way, was actually a real uh, actor. Or Archer, I should say. Ali takes the stage after the auction and bears himself by throwing up into a waste paper basket. To leave, and Ollie is mortified over his behavior. He tells Hackett that he wishes he could go with him on a business trip involving some of Queen Industries' offshore accounts. Hackett tries to talk him out of it, but Ollie insists on coming along. He cannot bear to be in the public spotlight after the fundraiser fiasco. On the lecture ship called the Pacific Queen, Ollie learns that Hackett has been embezzling money on behalf of a criminal named China White. We don't want Ollie involved. He didn't want Ollie involved, but knew that his presence on the journey threatened to expose China White's operations. Hackett holds Queen at gunpoint, but Ollie knocks him down with a punch to the jaw. Hackett responds with a headbutt, and Ollie collapses onto the deck. China White telephones Hackett and orders him to shoot Queen. Hackett doesn't want to murder Ollie in cold blood, so he dumps him overboard. And actually, that's a good place to start with kind of this comic in general. Um, I don't know much about China White, but I'm understanding that uh, she is an established DC villain, or at least DC character. Um, but uh, this issue, to, again, is kind of a good example of retcon slash making things fit together, um, is that her name is actually Chayan Nawai. Uh, and so when said quickly, it could become like China White or China White. Uh, and at one point where um, Oliver's talking to Hackett, Oliver does correct him the name and Oliver was that's why I said. Uh, so it's it's a nice way of giving her a real name and then how this this pseudonym can kind of come out of that. And it's it's actually I think really clever in the sense that the main reason why she is called China White is because Americans are stupid. <laughs> I can really get behind that. It's like, oh, well, you know, they misheard this. They don't understand that. So they just call her this, which is a pretty common trope of, of Westerners. It's just, 
they misunderstand it and they just apply their own name to it uh, based on what they thought they heard and that kind of name that sticks. So it was a nice kind of clever bit. Uh, from our perspective, like I mentioned, we're nine years into, uh, or since the last time we looked, uh, computer coloring in, in particular has gotten a lot better than the 90s coloring. So we're seeing a lot more subtle gradations, a lot more uh, uh, shading, um, more talk about the term realistic color is, is happening in the sense of how shadows fall on, on things like fabric. Uh, the very first page starts off with a, a, a zoom out of a compass and the way um, there's a, a, a streak of light across the glass of the compass that is particularly great looking. It, it makes you really look at the thing and say, oh, this is something that's covered in glass and the way light hits off it. There's no ink lines on that. That is all pure coloring. And it's it's done really, really well. So we're seeing now some of the subtle components of this and the zoom in on the compass. You can actually even see kind of how those lines were built because one of the flip sides of heavy computerization of art is that it's trivially easy to simply copy and paste a panel or copy and paste and, and modify something existingly done. So um, rather than artists painstakingly redrawing a panel multiple times, they would just copy and paste it. And sometimes when an artist is running late, uh, uh, it's become almost kind of a, a meme where uh, if two people are talking to each other, they'll just copy and paste the same two heads over and over rather than actually adding something to it. Uh, so there's one of the kind of downsides of this is that this is probably actually just a, a snapshot of that uh, compass zoomed in and then just dropped into that panel. But it does give us a chance to actually see kind of the, the depth of coloring and, and how this was kind of put together. So those kind of, of visuals are really, really great. Um, but again, we are looking at like, uh, it's, it's, this whole thing starts off with white paneling in a weird, unintentional, I assume, but interesting connection to the last version we read of the, the white snow. Um, we have a similar kind of trope established here, but again, because they're in the snow, the white background makes a lot of sense. And, and, and that, that that's, not doesn't, doesn't come across as cheating in this case. Um, I will say if you go through um, backgrounds are a little more consistent, but uh, um, there are places where the background does fade away to be more kind of impressionistic. Uh, if you look at the auction, for example, um, particularly on page eight, uh, the top of it, they're at the party, um, and you see that the background is just kind of a, a solid yellow, but you just see a pillars in the background on panel one and, and panel two, you see kind of another kind of corner of the room that gives more of an impression of backgrounds. But what's interesting about this is, if you look at panel two in particular, um, it's not solid yellow like we saw in previous issues. Instead, um, there's kind of a yellow uh, a darker yellow background and then kind of a, a, a wedge with a lighter yellow beneath it, which gives the impression of almost like light falling from the ceiling so that like the corners are a little more in shadow, whereas kind of the center area is more lit. So by the way the color is applied, you actually get more of a feeling of a deeper background than actually exists in the art itself. So we have the role of colorist actually kind of starting to take some stronger artistry role in the actual production of the comic. So computers certainly add more 
nuance to these things. On the flip side, um, again, going back to the pros and cons of computer art, uh, if you go a page back, um, that big charity fundraiser sign, it's really clear that uh, the letters in there are actually put in by letterer. They're not drawn in by Jock uh, because they don't quite line up with the edges of the sign itself. Um, and it's something that you'll see a lot is um, they figure, oh, well, the, the letterer can now put that stuff in because before it was assumed that unless it was actually lettered captions or bubbles, that basically the artist would actually be putting those words in. Now with the flexibility of computers, it's assumed that actually the, the letterer can probably put the stuff in. A similar um, example is in uh, modern Transformers comics. It's a good example. Uh, some artists prefer to hand draw the faction symbols onto the characters, but the faction symbols, if you've ever seen them for Transformers, they're kind of fiddly, and particularly when they get small, it's really hard to draw those well. So some artists, and indeed most artists in certain circumstances, will actually just take uh, – a screen capture of the actual faction symbol and, and shape and deform it to fit to whatever the orientation of the character they're putting on is. But sometimes if you're looking carefully, you can just see, okay, this is actually a pasted on symbol rather than drawn as part of the art. And so that fades in and out of fashion over the course of various Transformers comics. And it really just kind of depends on who's responsible for the comic and who's making it. Um, but it's, it's something that once you look for, you can kind of notice it. Um, we're now also moving to more of a color as palettes and palettes as mood. So if you look at all of the auction pages, uh, yellow is the primary color, like I mentioned before in the backgrounds, but also the shades on the characters are all kind of tinted yellow. The way the light is hitting them is tinted yellow. The faces have a yellow tint to them. And then when you move to the car, which is kind of outside at night, we move to blues. Um, so now all of those areas that were being tinted with yellow are now being tinted blue instead. And that those palettes are generally being consistent to a page. Uh, when you get to um, the part where they're out in the sun, uh, the bright sun on the ocean, uh, we're yellows and blues again, but also there's a lot of white in there because the sun is so bright. Even though we never actually see the sun in any of the panels, except for one case where it's behind all over. Um, and even then it's not, it's more of an impressionistic version. Uh, uh, but the, the, the way the color of the light is put on uh, actually helps us sell the setting perhaps even more than if it were actually drawn in. So uh, this is definitely a case of color artists becoming a much stronger part of the collaborative process than they were perhaps in previous decades that's not to discount i, I think colorists are, are frankly have over been over overlooked constantly throughout the creation of comics as an art form but this is a very uh, particular example where you can start to see that there's actually storytelling and artistry happening here in a way that that's easier to 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 parse than perhaps before where i was just okay we need to put those bright colors in and also part of that is paper stock changes um, since the 1990s to now, the kind of paper that comics are printed on is different. Before this, I think 20th century, the end of the 20th century is about the, the end of it, but uh, they used really cheap pulp paper, um, which was because it was supposed to be a disposable medium. 
Uh, and also for a period of time, it was, you know, frankly inexpensive and, and the comics didn't have much of a margin. So they used kind of newsprint style paper. It was, it was extreme paper. Um, if you look at older comics, uh, when, when they yellow, uh, they weren't always that kind of yellow or grayish quality. They turn that color over time because they are relatively cheap paper. Whereas now most comics are printed on uh, coated paper so they can keep their white longer. Um, and also the ink doesn't seep into the page as much. So details not lost. And so these nuances of color, you have to see better on the page, which means that artists have more opportunities to do nuance and subtlety in their artistry in order to kind of get that across because they know the paper will actually hold that images much more effectively. And then of course now, or in digital comics where that's not even a factory anymore. And so digital comics can be even more precise and nuanced if they want to. Uh, anyway, that's way more than I expect to talk about color, but um, uh, this is a part where it's, it's genuinely getting exciting because I'm starting to see over the course of this project how comic art has changed in a way that I haven't really looked at before. So I, I'm really enjoying this part of the process. Uh, but let's move on to issue two. Uh, Ollie washes up on the beach of one of the Fiji islands. He is alone, tired, and hungry. He begins wandering into a nearby jungle as the sun burns down upon him. He comes upon the remains of a camp, along with a water pump and power generator, both of which turn out to be useless. Near the camp is a pit that leads down into a dark, dank shaft. It is filled with skeletal remains of human bodies, victims of apparent gunshot wounds. Going back topside, Ollie finds a leaf spring suspension blade and fashions it into a makeshift bow. He uses rusty nails, bamboo shoots, and broken bottles to make arrows, and manages to eke out an existence for himself hunting fish, birds, and monkeys. He takes a piece of sail canvas and uses a poncho to protect himself from the sun. Several nights pass, and Ollie hears the sound of an airplane up from off in the distance. He runs out from the camp and fires a signal flare arrow made from burning rubber in the plane's direction. As the plane angles itself in Ollie's direction, a gunman leans out of the hatch and begins spraying machine gun fire at him. And... Here's where we start to have a synthesis approach. Um, this is, for a lot of reasons, this is not an accurate retelling of Oliver Queen's origin. For one thing, it's very clearly set in 2007. The technology and the nuances and the references all make it extremely clear this is this is taking place now. And as I talked about in previous episodes, comics time is confusing and wibbly wobbly. But here, it's 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 not even pretending that it is set in the 60s because it can't or 50s uh, when it was created uh but another piece is that two iconic things happen and neither of them quite line up so on the one hand uh the signal flare arrow is the start of the trick arrow approach which as we talked about was something that was being kind of written out of green arrow from a couple decades ago. It was an explicit character moment in the 80s, and the idea of trick arrows were kind of almost a, a sideline or a, a joke for Connor Hawk in the 90s. So now we see here's where Oliver Queen kind of starts to get the, the trick arrow idea from, and we'll see more of that in future issues. But separately, when he creates the poncho, that, that, that moment, that look is very clearly the hooded green arrow look, which is something that did not come about until the Mangrell run, as we saw. So it's not a 
literal attempts to retell the actual origin of the character that, frankly, was long kind of alluded to. Uh, but nor does it ignore what happened previously. This is why I say I feel like this is much more of a synthesis. They have to take all this history and mesh it together as best as we can and retell year one, which is, to be fair, what a lot of the year one comics do. Uh, Marvel did a similar version of this. Uh, they called season one, uh, but it's the same idea. It's like, let's take the bits and pieces that everyone recognizes and retell them to a modern audience to A, give them a new entry point into these characters and B, to help synthesize all the various creative changes that happen to characters over a period of time and give a, a hybridized version. And I think this is a really good example of that. Um, uh, again, we have a use of color to help sell setting. Um, in particular, uh, Oliver's on the island, again, lots of strong yellows. Uh, but then when he goes underground, it changes to uh, purples. And uh, there's actually a color transition on page seven where the top half is yellow. Um, and then the square, as he climbs down into the underground area, the square is colored yellow, but then the walls around it are yellow blending to purple. And then everything else is, is distinctly purple. But there is some subtle things like uh, when Oliver is climbing down, it is a lighter shade of purple. And then when he is deeper underground, the purple gets a little darker and a little deeper. Some of it also is the inking. The inking also gets deeper, which certainly helps that. Uh, but there's a shaft of light where it's just relatively pale purple. And then outside of the shaft is a much deeper, almost royal purple. So again, using color to kind of tell a space. Uh, there's another great example on page 10 where um, Oliver's walking in the open beach. And it's, again, very strong yellows. But the last panel, he's moving into the shade of trees. And it's now yellow tinged with green. So it's a different way. These are all different ways of showing reduced light. Uh, and each of those tells you something about that place. Like the blue was much more kind of a street corner. Purple is an underground crypt. Green is underneath the shade of trees. So each of those colors are giving you kind of a subconscious hint into what this place is actually about. Uh, again, on page 12 is that kind of iconic um, shot. It's interesting about that also is if you juxtapose uh, this page 12 shot with a similar, we, when Oliver Queen was playing with the bow and arrow uh, in the previous issue, it's identically framed. Um, there's the, the sun behind him is a circle. He's pointing the arrow at the camera at a, at a 90 degree angle. Um, but in this case, his face is covered in shadow because of the, the hood. So we're literally seeing kind of the green arrow being built uh, in between these two shots. Um, I won't keep bringing up color, but I, I just noticed that like the, the fire camp is kind of oranges and reds. Uh, so we'll keep seeing that. Um, but yeah, also, uh, uh, there is a lot of background missing in particular on page 18. Um, it, it, it's almost completely, well, there's a little bit of, of trees put in to kind of give context for it, but it's, it's almost floating out there. Uh, but I, I think that case it's it's meant to be a little more uh, to give contrast to Oliver. So basically, like you see the the dark purple background of the sunset of Oliver on the beach, contrasting with the whites of it being in the sky. I think it's much more a storytelling conceit to also make it clearer where the action is happening. Because in the previous page, those colors were blending, even though it's kind of a similar panel structure. 
uh, but now they have white in the background. It helps to help uh, Oliver's darker inks pop out um, when his eyes are go wide. The, the white really helps to sell the, the darker elements of the page. And then it goes back to the color sky, if you will, for, for uh, the next few pages. So I think that's probably an intentional color choice to actually choose to drop that color out and let the stark white tell the story. So sometimes background missing can be used for, for creative effect. Although as I'm flipping through, backgrounds are still relatively missing. And that's something that once you see it, particularly in modern comics, it's kind of hard to unsee because usually these are made in such a, a fast schedule. Uh, what's interesting, a bit of a digression, but um, I've been reading a lot of manga race recently and also learning about how uh, manga is created. And how they address it is sometimes they also do have missing backgrounds, but they actually have assistants usually come in who just do backgrounds, which is not something that is usually done in, in Western comics. On the flip side, also, um, uh, usually for manga, the writer and the artist are often the same person much more frequently than necessarily in Western comics and much more consistent art team throughout. So they're really just kind of shuffling the duties differently, whereas in Western comics, they'll probably get like a group of people come rotate artists or writers in and out to kind of keep things going and to keep things fresh. Whereas in this case, they have assistants coming in to help with certain parts of the art to kind of make that easier. So it's interesting how different uh, uh, cultures approach the same creative problems. Uh, but anyway, that is issue two. Let's go on to issue three. Uh, a gunman from a seaplane continues to fire at Oliver, but Ollie manages to respond with two well-placed arrows. The pilot loosens control and the plane crashes into the side of a mountain. Ollie scales the side of the mountain to impact the wreckage and manages to acquire a pair of boots in the process. Wandering around the volcanic base of the mountain, Ollie finds tilled fields of poppy seed. He also meets a pregnant woman who tells him that China White uses slave labor to cultivate the poppies for heroin. China White and Hackett arrive at the site of the down plane and Ollie hides in the brush. China orders Hackett to find out who's responsible for the plane crash. She also has him finish off the surviving crewman. As night falls, Oliver encounters Hackett in the jungle. Hackett opens fire on him with his machine gun, but Ollie pins him to a tree with an arrow. Hackett draws a handgun and tags Ollie in the shoulder. He then frees himself from the arrow and produces a grenade launcher, which he fires in Ollie's direction. The attack fails to produce the desired results, however, and a tree falls down on top of Hackett. Ollie is bleeding profusely and collapses to the ground, where everything goes white. So, uh, in this one, I mean... It's almost weird to kind of look at these issue by issue because uh, another thing that's kind of happening at this era, it's good talking about, is uh, what is known colloquially as writing for the trade. And what that means is that prior to around 2000-ish, um, comics were still primarily written for the magazine form. So while comic companies were finding that combining issues into trade paperbacks and selling them were very profitable, most of the time, how those got combined was a bit esoteric, depending on how the the run was put together. So, like, if there was a seven-issue story, but one of those was a fill-in, sometimes uh, they would just drop the fill-in issues. They wouldn't actually seri com you know, c combine every single uh, issue of it, just the ones that relate to the story. Whereas in other compilations, uh, they're trying to... Or contain the entire series, they would have that fill in, but maybe uh, the story would uh, be broken across 
two different volumes, depending on if it was a major or minor story. Usually they tried to kind of cram the major stories into a single volume, but some of the subplots may go across multiple volumes because that's really how comic book writing was done in the 80s and 90s. So around uh, uh, 21st century, comic book companies realized that they can make more money by trying to write the issues, but then sell those pretty quickly as uh, trade paperbacks because the issues would go into the market, they get sold and they're pretty much be done, but trade paperbacks, they could reprint and resell and reprint out there. So you start to see where um, comic book runs start to naturally fall into five or six issue arcs that you can kind of hop in and hop out of. There's still subplots that carry over, but there's going to be a strong buildup and resolution every five to six issues. There are a couple of exceptions here and there, but generally speaking, that's the pattern you're going to run into. And sometimes what happens is then you have chapters where not a lot happens because if this had been just a normal run of comics, they would make kind of three issues or done in seven. Uh, uh, but because they kind of had to fit the structure, sometimes the story doesn't quite stretch enough or maybe gets crammed in and both those can result in an issue which feels kind of wonky on its own and so this was very much written with the idea of they make it and then they have this easy to print volume they can then hand out to people or sell to people and especially when uh Great when Arrow started coming in the air um I know that there was a special edition of issue one of this that was released in conjunction with Arrow, a new cover was was drawn that was made to that Jock did to make it look like, you know, the character from Arrow, um, and the, and sales of this probably went up as a result of that. Uh, so, this was very much written to be, you know, one like a hundred and forty page novel rather than selling individual issues. Uh, so a lot of the stuff I've talked about before, you know, they're going to come up in, in uh, issues again because it's kind of written. In that, with that in mind, uh, one thing that's new here though is um, uh, Chien Nawai. When she appears on here, um, she is in a white jumpsuit with uh, white hair, white lipstick, and white fingernails. Uh, and the first time she appears, she's actually against a white background. So the shading of her hair and how the shadows fall across her her jumpsuit help distinguish her from the background a bit more, but then as she starts appearing against colored backgrounds, her imagery kind of pops a little more distinctly. Interesting way to kind of make her not jar in her first appearance uh, visually. Um, but on the flip side, uh, also her outfit doesn't have a lot of detail on it. It's really just kind of a, a, a huge chunk of white, even her hair. There's n you see like a, a few lines here and there to kind of distinguish different strands of hair. And that's about it. And that's pretty common for uh, Jock's style. Uh, a, a lot of the hair you see around here, it's usually the colorist is the one who's doing different colors inside the hair to get, look like it has more texture, but really her hair and her outfit just looks like just huge blocks, chunks of white. And I have to think, because of the fact that we do see shadows and whatnot here and the fact that we do see color changes in other characters, that must have been an intentional artistic choice by the team to make sure that she stands out as being a little removed from the action of the rest of the comic. So I think it's kind of a visual cue of she's not really 
a part of this. And the fact that her face usually has more detail than like her hair and outfit does. The white parts specifically do not have detail, but the rest of her body that you see does. So that's an interesting kind of element as well. Uh, a fight in the forest is, is very heavily shaded in green, but more particularly also um, there's uh, green bleeding out to the edges. gives a little more organic look, which I thought was a nice touch, as opposed to the sharp angled color changes I noted when they were inside of a building. Um, and of course, it's it's, partial, it's green because it's in the jungle, but also green because of, of Green Arrow. And so that's kind of another... It's a bit of nose, uh, but... I talked about this before with Green Lantern. Um, it's a way to kind of showcase color as a way of telling story. And another interesting touch that I liked is uh, if you look at uh, page 19, a lot of the sound effects are colors that relate to the action. So the blam, 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 blam are actually yellow related to the, the gun bursts of the gun. Um, when the Gun is cracking off an arrow. It's more of a kind of a neutral gray. But when he's next page, when he's pulling the arrow out of his shoulder and the blood's coming off of it, uh, the schluck of that uh, is, is colored red. And when he's shot in the hands, the thwack is also colored red. So it's an interesting touch that I hadn't noticed before, but usually uh, uh, sound effects prior to the 2000s were kind of just colored in a way to make them stand out on the page easier. So usually just kind of like a contrasting color to the rest of the palette of the, the, the panel it's in. These are actually tied to the action. So again, the colorist choice, which I find really interesting. And also, um, not to dis, not, not to ignore the lettering, but some of the actual lettering of those sound effects are also interesting. Like the, the O and the thwack is much bigger to kind of sell that this is a, a piercing action. Um, so, uh, and then uh, when Oliver kind of fades out and the last line is everything goes to white, not only is that last panel white, but also the entire background of those panels is white. So another way to kind of marry the color and the action. Uh, so let's go into issue four. When Oliver awakens, he finds the pregnant slave woman kneeling over him. He learns that her name is Tiana, Tiana and resets his, she resets his broken arm. To deaden the pain, she begins feeding him opium. Over the course of several days, Ollie slowly grows dependent on the opium while he heals from his injuries. He recognizes the hunger of addiction and swears to wean himself off the drug. Meanwhile, Hackett reports back to China White. China is furious that Hackett didn't shoot Ollie aboard the Pacific Queen as she instructed him to. She tells him to find Queen and finish him off or else she will throw him away in a dungeon to be eaten by rats. A short time later, two of China's gunmen find the meager camp that Tiana and Ollie have been resting in. They open fire on him, but Queen drives them off with several well-placed shots from his custom-made bow. Tiana and he run off separate directions, and Ollie eventually reaches the shoreline. He is shocked to find that his yacht has beached itself on the shore. He goes inside to clean himself up and gather supplies. He finds the Howard Hill bow that he purchased at the auction, and then sets fire to the ship. He hopes that the flames will alert China White's mercenaries and they will come looking for him. This time, however, Oliver Queen is ready to fight back. Uh, this one is interesting uh, because it's a good example of a retcon used well. So, for those who know, uh, although I suspect it's vanishing with you if you're listening to a podcast this deep about comics, uh, retcon is short for retroactive continuity, where... Uh, Something that is published later in a story puts more context or changes a factor of a previous story. 
the best pop culture example of this is the Star Wars prequels. Uh, they were created after the original Star Wars trilogy, but they give context and, in fact, create continuity that didn't previously exist. So uh, Anakin Skywalker and his fault Darth Vader is stuff that was alluded to, but now we see more of that, and sometimes it actually even changes it. Usually retcons are discussed in the process of changing continuity retroactively. Um, although sometimes retcons are used to simply just create continuity where it didn't exist previously. This addiction to opium here gives interesting context to the speedy storyline we looked at in the 70s. Uh, because now his wild overreaction to speedy taking drugs now makes more sense because it's the he also had potential to be an addict. He managed to fight it off. And so he thinks other people can do that too. So now his Ollie, that's not how addiction works, frustrations can make sense because it's the, well, I did this, so why can't you do this? Which is an, an interesting facet of addiction. Some people just frankly are less addicted to drugs than others. There is a physical factor as a result. Of, there's, there are mental factors, so I don't want to discount those, but there is a physical component of addiction that does exist. Some people can resist the, the physical component of addiction more easily than others. And so this is a case where Olive Queen is relatively resistant to it, it seems. So he's able to shrug this, this opium addiction off, even though he is craving it from a mental perspective. Because he even said, I am in pain, I need this. And when he's finally presented with it, he right, okay, you're right. I'm I'm getting too attached to this. I need to stop. But someone with a stronger physical intolerance of addiction would probably find a mental reason to justify that. So it's is an interesting way of uh, of again retconning that 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 seventy story and also makes that story better. Frankly, uh, uh, it is unlikely people read this and then went turn around and go read that run of seventies. But for something like this, where we're kind of jumping around, we're not that far away from Mufrid. So we look back and go, okay, now with this new context, I can read this story and get a better value out of it. It makes more sense now because this thing that was produced after it helps to fill in that gap. To me, that is an example of good retconning. And I, I've often argued that retconning is not inherently bad. It is just often used badly or it is not thought out well. Or sometimes retconning happens in a space where no retcon was needed and therefore does active damage to it. Um, uh, Recent Doctor Who has been often cited for kind of retconning classic Doctor Who in a way that wasn't really needed because there was no problem to solve and has now actually introduced more problems than it solves. So certainly retconning can be bad, but this is a case where I feel like I have a better understanding of Oliver Queen as a character, even though nothing in this issue specifically points to that story. It's a small component, and it's a natural outgrowth of the actions happening in this story. But I'm able to put those pieces together as a reader and go, oh, I now see why this happens. So if it's making me as a reader think and it's making me as a reader appreciate past stories better, that is an excellent example of retconning. Uh, aside from that, um, there is actually a really cool uh, pa page on 9, uh, which is a lot more kind of psychedelic. It's 
lot. Obviously, it's Oliver who's taking the opium as a kind of way to help him with his pain. But uh, uh, the art is done in that almost 70s style we saw of a huge face overlapping with imagery, but also specifically um, the color is much more muted um, and there's much more jarring. We're moving away from a strong palette on the page to much more of a mixture of colors. And they're all done in kind of almost pastels. It's a way to kind of sell the surreal nature of the page without overwhelming you like some of the earlier versions of this would have done. So that's a nice touch of, because again, opium is not a psychedelic drug. It, it, it's, you can occasionally have uh, mental uh, hallucinations or whatnot, but it's much more muted. Everything I've, I've had opium for pain before, so it's a much more muted. Everything just feels kind of removed and fuzzy, so it's a good way to visually sell that experience without necessarily, again, telling you. Although the page does also kind of tell you that the caption boxes do actually kind of tell you what's happening in the page, so that's not as ideal as it could be. Um. Another strong change uh, on 18 from green to purple to kind of, of sell a movement. A little too heavy-handed, in my opinion, on, on these pages now. Um, uh, it, it, I, I liked how it was done better. This is almost monochrome in how strong it is, and that, and that page transition makes it even more glaring and stark. But um, it's also probably meant to be extremely late at night, where... Uh, we, when we look, when we look at night, I mean, everything looks kind of monochromatic. So that might be what's what's happening here. It, it's not my favorite collection of pages, but it is an interesting touch. Um, uh, we are again kind of slowly rebuilding or accurately building uh, Green Arrow here. So page twenty-two, when he gets uh, the Hills bow, him uh, staring at the bow in his hands with his hood up. Uh, Prior to that, there's a small inset panel of Oliver completely in shadow with the sun behind him. He's standing at the same angle we saw him in, in issues one and two. It's not exactly the same setup. He's not pointing the bow, um, although he does do that at the bottom of the page. So rather than having that one big iconic splash page like we had in the previous issues, the elements of that splash has now been broken across a few different panels. So we have the, the silhouette, we have the sun behind him, but then we also have uh, more of the outfit together, uh, a much more uh, a bow that's closer to the one that we usually see. And then we still have the image of him uh, pulling back on him, pointing at the camera. It's just they're not all in the same. So it's, 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 it's still rebuilding it, but it's not, it's not a direct callback. It's much more of a subtle callback. So Jock is clearly aware that he's going back and touching on this, this particular image throughout this comic to sell. Here is how far along ollie is into becoming the character we know as green arrow but he's not doing it the exact same way each time which i think is good it, it just, it's, a, it's not heavy-handed so it's a nice subtle touch okay let's go to uh, issue five um as china white's men inspect the source of the smoke oliver jumps out of hiding and shoots the gunman leaving him tied up on the beach he finds a map of the island on the boat and sets sail to the slaver base to free the natives Ollie passes through unnoticed using a blunt arrow to knock out a guard. So more trick arrows. So he notices uh, Tiana making a run for it and is forced to fire an arrow at an ethanol tank, causing an explosion and releasing the slaves. Oliver breaks into a control bunker and closes the gates of the base, destroying the hull of the freighter. He then attempts to radio the outside world, but the power is cut short by Hackett, who electrocutes Ollie. Uh, and so now we have two trick arrows here and we have a fire arrow and a knockout arrow. And he even talks about how I need to, to patent this. Now, to be fair, his 
trick arrow, and I am using it in quotes, is literally just unscrewing the tip of the arrow and then hitting them with the, 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 the blunt part of the, of the shaft. So it's not an elaborate one. And same with the, the flame arrow. It's just basically uh, you know, a bit of flaming rag tied to the arrow. So these are not complex trick arrows. But the idea of I can do more with my bow than just shoot pointy bits of wood into people is a connection to uh, their, to the um, original character and I think is a good middle ground. Because uh, one thing that, that I was feeling when I was reading through Lumber Hunter that I talked about was that just having a bow and arrow gets kind of eh. Um, I feel like, particularly with Hawkeye, and some of this is probably coming from Hawkeye, is that the trick arrows are kind of a staple of comic book archers now. And so completely divesting that does a disservice because part of the fun, frankly, is like, what can you do with this? Um, and I think it's okay to occasionally lampshade the more ludicrous expansions of it. Um, you know, like we talked about uh, back with the Hawkeye one is the USB arrow and, and Kate going, what is this? Why does this even exist? Uh, so I mean, I think it's okay to have those moments, but to just go to just a bow and arrow makes this trope less interesting because it started from a particular area of lunacy. And I think some of that needs to be in there. So this is a good attempt to kind of say, okay, it's early on. He's still figuring it out. But the fact that he even says like, you know, I should, I should patent this. And then goes on to successfully use the knockout arrow. Um, and specifically, I, you can't do this with a gun. I think the other kind of piece of that is that this shows a versatility to, bows and arrows that are integral for these kinds of archer characters, I feel. So that's a nice tip punch. Um, one interesting thing is that uh, I talked a lot about all the two-page spreads uh, in the last set of issues. Um, and now, this is, I've only seen, we're on page, issue five, and this is the first one I've seen is on page nine and ten. Uh, so, and it's for the hidden World War II subpen in the island. So it's, it's a huge area and you see the boat in the context of this big area. So it's, it's a, it's a moment worthy of a splash page, but it's interesting. It's not action. Splash page is not tend to draw attention to a huge moment, but rather to a scope of space. And I don't know the reasons why, but if I had to guess, I suspect some of that is because of the fact that jock is uh, at this point in time still relatively new to American comics there's still a lot of his work is done British comics and British comics don't do two pages spreads it's the same intensity uh, manga use two page spreads pretty frequently American comics use them pretty frequently these days uh, but British comics tend to stick to one page uh, they don't even do splash pages very often and usually it's because uh, a lot of anthology style British comics, specifically what I'm thinking of here, like 2080, tend to be six to eight pages in length. So they have to cram a lot of story in small space. So they don't have the space to do a two page spread. Um, amusingly, manga is kind of in a similar constraint of anthology style, but they just don't care. It's like, we'll just have very little happen this week, but those two page spreads are really warranted. So they just culturally accept it's okay if our story doesn't progress very much. Uh, British comics tend to be much more okay. I can get at least some progression in my story every week. So um, I think some of this is he's just frankly used to doing one page breakdowns, uh, but I could be wrong, but that, that's my, that's my uh, uh, 
that's my thought based on what I know about uh, Jock's career. Um, and then, yeah, other than that, uh, I talked about the um, flame arrow, which uh, I'm sorry, was that is not rag? It was actually a flare, just duct taped to a stick. Um, it, it's 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 gloriously low tech, but still really sells uh, the concept well. And okay, final issue. In the command bunker, grenades are tossed down, forcing Oliver to jump into the water. Meanwhile, the freed slaves continue to rise up, but Tiana insists on not leaving without Oliver. On the sinking freighter, Ollie shoots a flaming arrow at some fuel oil barrels, forcing the passengers to abandon ship. Suddenly, Hackett jumps down from a crane and points his gun at Oliver. However, behind him, Tiana is also holding him at gunpoint. Hackett tries to goad Ollie into killing him, but Oliver tells him the world doesn't have to be the survival of the fittest. Just then, Hackett is shot in the back by China White. The two proceed to stand off until Oliver shoots the rope into shoots the rope holding the cargo crate, which falls onto China and her men. Suddenly, Tiana starts to go into labor. She has a baby girl who she names Queen in her native language after the man who fought for their freedom. Later, American soldiers apprehend China White, while Oliver suggests that Tiana starts a new life back on the mainland. She politely declines, insisting that peace is all she wants. Ollie offers to downplay the whole event and finally realizes what he wants to do with his life. Back at home, Ollie dons a new all-green mask costume as he patrols at night. And this is another piece that is a really good kind of synthesis, is uh, Oliver Queen, in my reading of him, I don't know how much of this is backed up by the actual comics. He doesn't seem to have the same almost pathological hatred of guns that, like, say, Batman does. But certainly, there's always kind of the question of, why don't you just use a gun? And last issue, we saw some of that, which is that the bow and arrow are, for him, much more flexible. Here we see the other pieces that Oliver Queen generally hated killing. We did see that in some of the previous comics we've read. Uh, But now we have a better sense of why is that Oliver Queen, being uh, a wealthy man in the West, was kind of in that, sorry, inuited with the whole, you know, survival of the fittest, you know, step on everyone below you, do what you can to survive stuff. This kind of badly echoed social Darwinism uh, that, that a lot of uh, rich characters espouse. He rejected, but still did. And now that he's bruised, reached a point in his character where he realizes, I, not only do I not need to do that, I don't want to do that. It's not desirable. So I'm not going to kill because I don't want, I don't like what that makes me. I don't like what that says about me. So it's an interesting, again, retcon of his desire to like to kill. In this case, it's grounded a little more in the actual material. Um, he's made similar comments in some of the stuff we've read previously. So it's not as, as radical of a retcon as, as his uh, past uh, struggles with drug addiction. But it does layer on and give some more depth to that. It's, okay, this is there's a reason why his refusal to kill is so deeply ingrained in him. So I can I can respect and appreciate that. Uh, one thing that's interesting uh, again, I'm going back to color, but I, I, I find this part uh, uh, interesting is that um, for a couple of pages, the uh, the panels with Ollie are multicolored, colored relatively naturally and are very, very vivid. Whereas the big panel in the background is much more muted and and heavily yellowed. Uh, So it really gives the impression like there's smoke and it's kind of obscured uh, as well as 
there being a fire off to the right of the panel because of the way the color is shading in. So uh, I, I'm going to keep saying this, but I, I, I still something I've come to appreciate recently is how strong a role that modern coloring tells in the story to help really ground things in a way that doesn't require it to be explained to you. Um, again, more strong purples. Uh, something I just realized as I was flipping through this is that I also think maybe the use of purple uh, is probably intentionally used to contrast with the green of Oliver's outfit now. Uh, initially, when he wasn't wearing the green, it was more kind of yellow-based because of his hair. But now that the, he has the, the green cowl, um, and so every time you see him, you're usually seeing him from the head and shoulders, and so strong green there. By having purple in the background and purple as part of the uh, area around it, you can kind of contrast with that, which is the reverse of kind of how things were handled in the Hawkeye comics because Hawkeye is predominantly purple. And so you see lots more green and other colors to kind of contrast that. So I hadn't really thought about the fact that Hawkeye and Green Arrow have complementary color schemes. So that's interesting, but that's not my only kind of Hawkeye thought. But, uh, let me skip through. Um, the last panel as well, uh, we actually just get his mask until he's back in the city. Uh, and that last page, he is colored um, pretty naturally. Um, you can you see there's a light source coming off from the left and how that's shading his body. Uh, but also the, the city itself, again, like the, the kind of purples and, and blues of the cityscape to kind of contrast with, with the green. Uh, so that's the six issue series. Um, I did mention that uh, that was my only kind of connection to Hawkeye uh, because I feel like this series is the closest I've read to the Matt Fraction run. There's a lot of similarities. Artistically, they're very different. Uh, David Aja and Jock are very different artists in a ways. Um, I would argue that Jock's art style is a little more modern superhero, whereas David Aja is did a broad precision and a form that was very new in 2012. Uh, so I still think from a pure visual standpoint, the Hawkeye comic holds up more strongly. But on the flip side, if you look at some of the non-Aja comics in that run, they're closer to Jock. And I think if you start comparing those, Jock's art holds up a lot better. So it, it, it's, it's I said before and last time, Aja, it's hard to compare to, to David Aja's art. So it's not fair sometimes. So Jock is... is Maybe not that level, but certainly he's above one of the other comp artists possibly in that run. Particularly, his his inks are very strategic. He is not a heavy inker. He is not a, a light hand inker. He gives enough room for color to go in there. Um, but this is a man who's used to doing black and white comics, so he knows exactly how much ink to put in to sell the scene. You don't want to do too much because it becomes muddy and hard to follow. You want to do too little because... Everything looks the same, so he's got a lot of experience in black and white, which gives great room for the color on there. Uh, but back back to to, to, to Hawkeye, um, the this is very similar to Matt Fraction, also because it is the same kind of balance. It is a superhero character set in a crime story, and 
the little bit of superhero frisson coming in makes him seem special and interesting inside this context in a way that maybe gets lost in the wider superhero world. Uh, uh, when you have Green Arrow in the Justice League, when you have Hawkeye in the Avengers, sometimes it just becomes the guy with the bow and arrow. But when you put him into these kinds of settings, you can see why he's seen as a superhero because he is a cut above in a lot of ways, whether it's due to his moral stance, his skill with the bow, his physicality, all combination of these. There's also a lot of overlap now with this Oliver Queen and the contemporaneous uh, Hawkeye. They're, they're both willing, taking a lot of damage for their beliefs, um, willing to stand up in this face of adversity. Uh, uh, the big difference is that um, Hawkeye was always a criminal, and so therefore always came from that grittier part, and it never really left him, whereas Oliver Queen specifically descends into that. And so some of his I idealism is, is just that. It's ideal. It, it it's, doesn't quite always map to the modern world, whereas Hawkeye is very much a realist and is willing to make hard decisions and sometimes not act in ways that people think is heroic. But he still has his own stronger ideals. They're just much more reduced in scope. Uh, so it's it's we've moved away from them kind of yinging and yanging away from each other. And now we're getting close to where, where they're starting to overlap a lot more. The Hawkeye run is only five years away from this at this point. So right now we're 2007, the Hawkeye run starts 2012. So we're seeing a lot more synergy in how these characters are, are related, but also there's enough depth of history for each of them that they don't feel the same. These two, like two very different characters, even though they have very similar gimmicks. And as I just realized, complementary color schemes. So um, I find that really interesting. And this was definitely of the runs I've read for this. So far, this one's actually probably my favorite. Uh, it, it feels like it's a really good balance of what I would want to see out of a Green Arrow comic, something that ties to a comic that I already love, and also just some really solid storytelling done very well. And it feels like it's finally a a full character as opposed to a character that's been kind of bounced around by editorial mandate or the latest retcon that's happened. So yeah, this is technically another reboot, but I feel like this is a pretty good uh, uh, counterpoint or good kind of pin into, okay, yes, this is Oliver Queen, which is unfortunate because then the reboot is going to happen. <laughs> Uh, because next time uh, we're going to look at the new 52 Green Era, where the entire universe got rewritten. Um, so we're going to look at the War of the Clan storyline, which is Green Era uh, issue number 17 to 22 of the new 52 runs. So That's going to be around 2015 or 16. So again, another roughly 10 years in the future. And that's going to be our last stop on the Green Era run. So I'm curious to see if this reboot is keeps a lot of the core of what I'm seeing in this Gear 1 Oliver Queen. So, with that, as always, if you have uh, questions or comments, uh, feel free to find me online. You can find me on Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. You can find my website at Pugsteady.com. And also, you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord, usually being told by Chris that he wants to do some cool new thing for genreless. Uh, so, um, Feel free to chat about this. I've been really enjoying this project. I look forward to doing the last issue or episode. And otherwise, I will catch you later.